I'm David Karras, and you're listening to Polyco, Conversations in Political Economy. Platforms represent an expansion and an empowerment of more traditional forms of rentier capitalism, but they're not, importantly, a kind of disruption. What would it look like to treat data as a public good? to create institutions based on something like a data commons, to expropriate it in a way that actually turns it into a public resource, something that is administered and stewarded by public institutions specifically for socially beneficial purposes. Today I'm talking with Jaden Sadowski from Monash University about the economic and political dimensions of digital capitalism. An emerging consensus perceives data mining and the concentration of big tech as signaling a dramatic shift towards a new age of digital feudalism. The story goes that digital services with minimal marginal costs enabled unprecedented concentration in the hands of giant corporations, which thrive on capturing rents in the form of data they mine from end users. For liberal defenders of competitive markets, this marks a dysfunctional phase of capital capitalism, where innovation and competition are stifled, whereas profit-driven accumulation is gradually displaced by rentierism. Jaden argues, on the contrary, that these contemporary forms of digital value capture sit in the continuity of capitalist strategies of extraction. This is not to downplay significant transformations in political and economic processes, but to recognize structural continuities in the logic of capitalism itself. We talk about the Internet of Things, smart devices and energy grids, platform-based services, new forms of territorial sovereignty by private companies owning digital urban infrastructures, but we also examine socialist alternatives to such a dystopian present, which would hinge upon socializing data to manage it as a public good. I'm Jathan Sadowski. I'm a research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University down in Melbourne, Australia. Broadly work on the political economy of technology, looking at developments in information technology, so-called smart technology, and trying to bring a very kind of geographical, political economy focus to that. It's a little weird because my original training is actually in science and technology studies. Um, so that's kind of given me the technological focus. But a lot of the theories and a lot of the literature that I draw from comes from um, a wide array of other social science disciplines. Before we jump into the content of your research, I would just be uh, curious to hear you on the methodological aspect of this. So how can you research a field that is, by definition, mired in secrecy, corporate or, or public? Yeah, that's a really good question and a, and a really hard one, because not only is, you know, the tech industry and the finance industry famously secretive, famously relying on proprietary software and technologies and uh, non-disclosure agreements and, you know, all these things that are designed to keep people from understanding what's actually happening. On top of all that, I, I always describe my research as like trying to hit a moving target because the, these things move fast and it's always like new developments happening and and new spectacles that kind of capture your attention. And, uh, you know, I, I fall victim to that all the time, right? Like I'll read about something and I'm like, okay, now I need to go into this black hole, just completely absorbed into understanding. You know, for example, the latest thing is um, BlackRock, which is the world's largest asset manager. And I just recently found out about this technology they have called Aladdin, which is a risk management and portfolio management platform, uh, which has, as of last disclosures from 2017, because again, they stopped doing disclosures because the numbers got too big. Um, but there is over $21 trillion of assets being managed on Aladdin's platform, which is fully 10% of the world's 
global stocks and bonds. The methodological question is really good because that's something that I'm like now really paying a lot of attention to and trying to understand and study. The way that I always start it is just reading every single thing I possibly can in the press and from the companies themselves about this. You know, I went into BlackRock's website and I, I scraped everything that I possibly could, all of their white papers, all of their website, amassed this a huge amount of primary content uh, material to analyze. And then also reading, you know, the Financial Times and Business Insider and the Wall Street Journal, seeing what kind of interviews and, and reporting that the, that journalists have done. And, and I find that to be extremely valuable to provide that context. A lot of times, the kind of standard social science methods of uh, of interviews and ethnography are, 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 as you you know, intimated, like very difficult to do because people just don't want to talk to you. <laughs> they don't want to talk to a social scientist, let alone someone that has a profile as critical of the industry and doing critical work. One of the ways that I try to get around this is by going to industry conferences and networking events. These are spaces where the industry is pitching to other people in the industry as well as potential investors what their new products are, what they want to do, what they're able to do, what they think that they can do, and why you should invest in it, why you should buy it, um, while at the same time telling a nice kind of story to government policymakers and regulators who might be there as to why this thing is actually really good and not dangerous. I mean, that's a really good way to uh, understand these kind of fast-moving developments while also being literally in the room, implicitly saying, hey, you dodged all of my cold calls and all of my cold emails, but now I'm going to just walk up to you at the buffet and strike up a conversation. And, and you know, maybe we don't have an on-the-record interview, but, you know, I can take some field notes based on these conversations and and start to derive some insight into the companies and into the industries and technologies and use that as a way to start building a, a more kind of theoretical understanding and analysis of these things. That is ethnography right there. That's great. First, I would like to ask if you could provide a typology of the different forms of online platforms and services which depend on and which facilitate digital data capture. Yeah, I mean, this is a great question because uh, the ways that I've increasingly started understanding and framing platforms themselves, right, as these kind of very necessary and, and ubiquitous forms of infrastructure and intermediaries in society and the economy and our lives, but also very much kind of designed to be the ultimate data capture machines. They are designed around what a sociologist Marion Forcod and Karen Healy have called this a data imperative, where these companies, tech companies, but increasingly all companies across the economy, kind of have this imperative to collect as much data as possible about everything possible and by any means necessary. And platforms are really designed to do that. Now, in terms of thinking about like what kind of platforms there are, I draw a lot on really good foundational work by Nick Sierncheck, whose book Platform Capitalism really provided the foundation for understanding this kind of new form or new variation, new developments in capitalism that are really focused on platforms. He describes 
a number of different types of digital platforms that are now emerging in this landscape. So we've got, you know, advertising platforms like Google and Facebook that are based on selling data, selling ads and predicting or even trying to modify and manipulate people's behaviors based on data captured from users. Cloud platforms like Amazon Web Services and Salesforce that are in the business of providing infrastructure, both hardware and terms of computing and data servers, but also software in terms of analysis of data and management of services. And there's a number of other kinds of platforms. Increasingly, we can even understand old legacy manufacturers like GE and Simmons as forms of industrial platforms because they also collect a lot of data, but focused on trying to transform more traditional manufacturing processes into highly interconnected and automated systems of production while also, right, like using that as a way to transform goods into services. So data is really, and importantly, the lifeblood of platforms. And increasingly, platforms are the foundation of the economy. And so you really have to understand the relationship between both of them. How do these platforms actually transform this data into economic value? And and what are the different forms of value extraction or capture that these platforms make possible? I think that is the most important question that these industries are trying to solve, is how to derive value from data, because they very much have a collect first, ask questions later attitude to data. Representatives of the industry are quite explicit in this. A quote that I like to use is by Andrew Ng. He's an artificial intelligence researcher, has held top positions at platforms like Google and Baidu and Coursera. And in a public talk he gave at Stanford Business School a few years ago, he said, quote, at large companies, sometimes we launch products not for the revenue, but for the data. We actually do that quite often, and we monetize the data through a different product. Now, the the question here is, what that means is that there is a very certain belief that data is valuable or Either that date that value can be derived from data or increasingly we see a fetishization of data as valuable in and of itself. So they're very certain that data has value. But what they are very vague and uncertain about is that valuation process. How do we actually turn data into value? That's where companies like Google and Facebook, for example, are trying to do that through ad sales. Companies like Uber and Airbnb are trying to do that through efficiently connecting market transactions and being intermediaries in that, right? So these companies are trying in a lot of different ways. And a lot of times, importantly, they're also failing at it and and failing in a way that means that they have these vast stores of data in the hopes that at some point in the future, it will be valuable. When we see some really kind of perverse outcomes from that as well, where Data is often used for secondary and tertiary uses, sometimes by third parties, sometimes years later after it was collected. What that means is that it can be very difficult to trace the collection of data to the use of data and then the ultimate consequences or outcomes of that data. So a great example of this is recently over the last couple of years, there was a company called Clearview AI. That was in the news a lot because it was this really powerful facial recognition software that was being marketed and sold and used 
to the police, to governments, to companies trying to provide this kind of really powerful facial recognition service. That service, that technology was largely built on images that its founder scraped off of websites like Flickr, right? Image hosting websites, websites like MySpace and Facebook, right? So it's like people uploaded their images, their data to these platforms thinking, oh, this is just a really nice way to share photos with my friends and family, to have all of my pictures in one central repository. But because that was publicly available, or at least because the founder of Clearview AI was able to use APIs to access that data. Years later, it was fed into this technology and value was derived from it through facial recognition service. All that's to say is that the networks of valuation of data are not obvious and they can be very complex and extend over space, time, sectors, and, and so on. I know that you talk about digital enclosures. So the analogy with the kind of like traditional Marxist story of how exclusion from commons from ownership is actually at the very basis of capitalist accumulation. And here with digital data, we see something pretty similar in the sense that people actually lose access to something which becomes an economic asset that is expropriated from them even without their knowledge or participation. So is this something which is in this tradition or do we need to think about this as a juncture that goes beyond the forms of exploitation and value extraction that we saw under capitalism in more traditional forms such as, you know, the wage labor and contracts, which fix the terms of exploitation. What does digital data change to this picture? Yeah, that's a good question. And this is definitely a, a major thrust of a lot of my work. Um, so I have this paper called The Internet of Landlords, which is really trying to understand platforms in terms of rentier capitalism. I have another paper called When Data is Capital, which is really trying to understand data as a form of crucial um, capital in contemporary capitalism. A lot of the basis of both of those papers largely comes from tracking these developments for a very long time, these technological developments, trying to understand them, and in a way, just going back to basics, right? Like I cracked open Marx's Capital Volume 1, and I was like, what if Marx was writing about data? What would that tell us? And and I wrote, and that's that was the basis of this uh, When Data is Capital paper is, I mean, a lot of the similarities that we see here between how companies accumulate and extract data and put it in a constant motion mirror and echo a lot of the ways that Marx was talking about more traditional forms of capital. And the same thing goes with platforms, right? You bring up this question of enclosure and I was like, trying to understand the operations of platforms, right? The operations of capital in terms of uh, this this really important institution or organization within capitalism today. I went back and I cracked open Marx's Capital Volume 3, where he talks about finance and rentierism and those things. And I was like, what if Marx was talking about platforms? And I read Volume 3 with platforms in mind. I was like, wow, okay, there, there's, that, there's a lot going on here that we can really learn from. What I think that tells us is that these are, as I've, as I've framed it, right? Like something like platforms represent an expansion and an empowerment of more traditional forms of rentier capitalism, but they're not importantly a kind of disruption 
of that, as people in Silicon Valley will often say, right? We're disrupting this and nothing will ever be the same. Nothing has ever been like this before, but that's, that's a lie. We can trace and understand the development of capital. It's different socio-technical systems. It's different social and political and economic context, but there's a lot of similarities in terms of the operations of capital. And so this question of enclosure, I think that a lot of how platforms work is through forms of enclosure. We've got this widespread application of business models that are called X as a service or Uber for X, right? So it's like software as a service, housing as a service, right? You can just fill in the blank and there's some startup that's trying to do it. But in reality, what that business model is premised on is rentier relations. It's premised on turning an asset into a service and, you know, turning someone's property or some form of property into something that can be uh, a rentable good rather than something that one owns. It's not only through platforms like Uber and Airbnb that like try to access the, the latent value in, you know, in your car or in your spare room and allow you to generate fares or rent it out or whatever. But it's also increasingly the Internet of Things, as it's called, all these kind of smart technologies that we have that are premised on embedding them with software, sensors, and connecting them to Wi-Fi, right? It's your toothbrush, it's your toaster, it's your coffee maker, your TV, all these things that have become smart. When what used to be upgraded as smart is now becoming the default for these things, and increasingly... What that means is that when you buy some smart consumer good, you only own the physical object, but the digital software that's embedded in it, that's oftentimes necessary for it to operate, is only licensed, which means that you're leasing or you're renting it. So we have this form of what I call a, a kind of digital micro-enclosure, where the companies, by integrating these things into the Internet of Things, retain ownership over the digital parts of a physical thing and all the rights and power that entails, their rights to control access, their rights to remote access, the rights to the data that's collected by that thing. You know, So even after you purchase it, you're still renting a core part of it from the manufacturer. You know, I argue that we can see in this way a kind of history of enclosure repeating itself, but instead of landlords building fences around the commons and demanding rent for access to landed property. These new platform rentiers install software in things and they capture value from the physical objects. In other words, they enact all of the violence of asserting property rights, but doing so in a way that is very insidious and very ubiquitous through throughout our lives. So we're kind of like you know, we no longer have to deal with the landlord that controls or owns our house. We now have to deal with this constant proliferation of landlords that also own your toothbrush and own part of your toaster and, you know, own all of these little things um, that, that occupy our lives. And what does it say about capitalism if and when these forms of rentier value extraction become so central for our daily lives. I would like to hear you on, you know, how you position yourself in relation to re-feudalization of capitalism. Does it make sense to think in these terms or not? The the question of re-feudalization or neo-feudalism is really interesting. And I, I think that it's not surprising that a lot of very prominent critics of digital platforms 
often compare the internet's economy to a system of neo-feudalism. We're said to be these kind of virtual vassals tilling on the data farms and paying tribute to the lords of the platform. I think that that analogy is tempting because it seems to make sense. But at the same time, I would argue that we need to recognize that this isn't some kind of reversion to a time outside of capitalism or pre-capitalism, but rather it is very much of and a part of rentier capitalism. Rentiers are a central part of capitalism. It, when we look at the kind of classical economists, not just Marx, but people like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, even, you know, John Maynard Keynes, right? When we look at them, I think we often forget that when they were talking about class, it wasn't just a binary relationship between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, between bosses and workers. They also talked about how the society was constituted through a tripartite class relationship. Yeah, there's bosses and there's workers, but there's also landlords and landlords are collecting rent uh, and, they're, and they're doing so by skimming from the workers' wages and the bosses' profits and putting that directly into the landlord's pockets. And so there's something very different here than a kind of feudalism in the sense that it's not disconnected from capitalism. And I think that we to really understand the operations of contemporary capital, we have to see that digital platforms and this kind of rentierism is an outgrowth of capitalism. And it's certainly not something that some prominent critics like Shoshana Zuboff and her work on surveillance capitalism talks about this as some kind of aberration of capitalism. You know, she calls it a rogue mutation of capitalism, as if the things that Google and Facebook were doing um, we're somehow not, you know, perhaps the perfect encapsulation of capitalism. Can you talk a little bit about what you call capital convergence when these different forms of capital, digital and traditional, fuse or merge? Yeah, I think this is really good because, you know, there's a lot of work around kind of comparative studies of capitalism, right? Like putting a modifier on capitalism and saying, okay, what's this look like? I mean, I do it myself, right? Like I, I wrote a whole book about digital capitalism. Um, and, and there's a lot of work on finance capitalism. And, but I think this concept of capital convergence that I talk about is a way to understand that these different analytical labels to understand certain industries or sectors or machinations of capitalism are in practice not disconnected from themselves. So Silicon Valley and Wall Street work hand in hand together a lot. And even real estate capital and technology capital work hand in hand to reshape the urban economy, urban space, right? So by looking at capital convergence, I'm really trying to understand, understand the ways in which different sectors of capital are working together to meet their own ends. We can see technology capital or digital capitalism, data capitalism, whatever we want to call it, we can see this as increasingly becoming the kind of substrate of all capital um, because you, you see a lot of industries that are traditionally seen as outside of the tech sector now, if not explicitly calling themselves technology companies, then trying to act in that way. It's firms like BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, a paragon of modern day financial capitalism, has talked about itself and, and aims to have 
a large percentage of its revenue over the next few years derived from its technology services. It's talked about Aladdin, this platform that has over 21 trillion assets managed on it. Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, talks about it as a startup. Right. So they're using this language. Ford, one of the a legacy auto manufacturer, talks about itself now as it is in the business of data. Simmons, right? Another manufacturer talks about itself as a platform, right? So we can see this convergence happening, but increasingly it's a convergence happening around other forms of capital trying to get on the tech train. Right. They see that this is where returns are happening. This is where exponential growth and scale is happening. They're trying to get into on it and direct it towards their own purposes and their own uses. Can you also talk a little bit about the ways in which these processes are also affecting things like energy grids and the types of smart energy networks that are being uh, implemented? And what is the type of... Uh, politics behind all of this, or maybe the lack of politics that is sustaining all this process. Right. I've done some work on what myself and my collaborator, Anthony Lavinda, have called the anti-politics of smart energy. And there we're looking at the ways in which energy utilities are using smart technology that are designed to automate the management of energy usage in the home. Technologies that are designed to visualize and communicate data about energy usage to um, people in their homes so they can, you know, act more like rational consumers and act accordingly. There's a spectrum here going on about the politics of these smart technologies in the energy sector. So on one hand, you've got these kind of showing technologies like the data portals, the visualization, the reports you get from your energy utility that show you how much energy you've used and when you've used it and, and, and so on. These technologies are designed to try to, to nudge people into using energy either more efficiently, more cheaply, at the right times, in the right ways, by giving them information, turning them into rational consumers, this kind of homo economicus model of how we ought to behave. On the other hand, though, increasingly, we're seeing this kind of trend towards companies, you know, startups, but also regulators and energy utilities themselves saying, okay, our, our like, decades-long ambitions to get energy users to act like rational consumers keep failing because people are just not rational. They just don't act that way, right? They want to use energy when they want to use it, when it plugs into their own routines and preferences, not when we want them to use it. And so we're starting to see the development of these automated set-it-and-forget-it type of technologies that are designed to just try to bypass the person altogether, outsource those decisions about energy usage to a technology, which can be programmed and coded to act in the most optimized way. And importantly as well, can also be orchestrated so that your energy usage is orchestrated and coordinated with your neighbors and with the suburb next to you and so on. Because the energy system is not just your house, it's the entire grid. It's an entire system that has to be orchestrated and coordinated. And so we see a lot of companies now looking at things like algorithmic management, automated systems, uh, it fed through a lot of data collected about energy usage as a way to 
turn the energy system into a smart system. What do you think about the recent crisis in Texas, which is an interesting illustration of the failures of energy networks? The crisis in Texas is really interesting in part because it's so unique. It's such an anomaly because Texas has a ridiculously unregulated, like just a not regulated energy system, which allowed for people to get their energy directly through wholesalers. Now this is, you know, and that's what Gritty was, this this uh, system in Texas is a wholesaler. So it was completely bypassing any kind of retail intermediary because we all, for the most part, get our data from a, a energy retailer. They buy energy from the wholesalers and then they sell it to us. And that kind of acts as a kind of insurance policy against possible wild fluctuations of energy prices on the wholesale market. Now, Gritty in Texas, because it's a deregulated system, was able to sell wholesale directly to consumers, which put them all at risk. If there was wild fluctuations in the energy wholesale market, then the consumers had to shoulder that burden. I mean, this is really interesting as well, because the way that Gritty got a lot of flack and a lot of really bad publicity from this, because people were getting like $17,000 energy bills, going bankrupt, trying to pay their bills. And Gritty came out and said, look, this isn't on us, okay? We were just providing a service because we don't get profits from the sale of energy because we're just selling it wholesale. We're selling it at the, at the price that we buy it from energy producers. All we get is a $10 a month subscription to be on the gritty network. And that that's all of our revenue. That's all of our profits are coming directly from that. The Texas crisis really shows is the ability for just everyday people to now engage in extremely risky speculation on these on these these wholesale markets and in finance right i think we can also draw an analogy here with something like robinhood right this kind of a retail app trade that that makes trading not only not only buying and trading stocks but also like really complex financial instruments like options just really easy just on the click of the button you right there's a argument here that Oh, this is democratizing access to wholesale markets or access to the stock market for retail investors. But that's also extremely risky as well because it means that people have to, without their knowledge, right? A lot of people that were getting their money or getting their energy from Gritty, a lot of people that are trading stocks on Robinhood don't actually understand how these systems work, how these institutions and instruments work. Because it's really complex and it's designed for us not to understand. It shows through technologies that aim to kind of democratize these systems. They're doing so in a way that is very much a kind of like buyer beware, caveat emptor. It's really risky because it really shows an acceleration of a of an economic system that is based solely on risk and speculation, like this mission of democratization that a lot of these technology companies claim to have is also a way of trying to rope people into uh, systems that are fundamentally broken. Let's talk a little bit about cities uh, and, and how 
do data-driven technologies shape our our cities and our urban landscapes? So uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you call platform urbanism? I've done a lot of work on the concept of smart urbanism and, and some work on this kind of newer concept of platform urbanism. And there that is really looking at the ways in which these smart technologies, these technology companies, these digital platforms are being integrated into urban space, urban governance, urban services. What I think is really interesting is also trying to trace the development of this kind of technological capitalism and situating it within the city, within the urban space is a really great way to see how this is developing. Because if we take a concept like smart urbanism, which I wrote my PhD on, smart urbanism was really interesting because it was largely based on like big multinational companies like IBM and Cisco, Sidewalk Labs, a subsidiary of Alphabet, sister company Google tried to get in on this as well, but that was really based on selling services, smell, selling smart solutions to city governments themselves saying, hey, look, we can help you do more with less. That old slogan of austerity, we can make the city run more efficiently. We can help you optimize, right? So, but what they were trying to do in a very kind of like management consulting way, just sell services, sell their expertise to city governments. That was a lot of what smart urbanism was based on. And then through that, right, like implementing kind of these data-driven, network-connected, automated infrastructures and technologies in the city. Now, the development of platform urbanism is quite interesting because the paragons of this are not like IBM and Cisco. It's more companies like Uber and Airbnb, right? These are the exemplars of platform urbanism. And importantly, whereas like IBM and Cisco was trying to partner with, you know, doing this old neoliberal public-private partnership with city governments. Platform urbanism and the companies that represent it are quite explicitly adversarial to city governments, adversarial to regulation. Their whole business model is based on arbitrage, right? Regulatory arbitrage. And what they have their sights on is not the governance of cities, or the oversight of cities, that's the old smart urbanism. What they have their sights on is the operations of cities, the services of cities, the things that their customers are not the city governments. Their customers are consumers, are people that live in the city. They want to form really intimate and close relationships with consumers and in that way capture consumers onto their platform so that they have no other way to escape. This is the monopoly model, right? Like we'll get all, we'll get everyone using Uber. They won't use public transportation. They won't use taxis. They won't use any other competitors. They'll only use Uber so that we can create a monopoly based on a captured set of consumers. And then in that way, we are starting to own what Frank Pasquale, a legal scholar, has called functional sovereignty, right? We start having sovereignty over the functions of cities. I think that is really important. That's a really important development from oversight of cities to operations of cities. And in my work, I've also traced what looks to be a kind of emerging third development here uh, focused on the the ownership of cities. So from oversight to operations to ownership. And this is almost a return to a more like territorial sovereignty model. And this is what um, like Sidewalk Labs in Toronto was really trying to do was, you know, we want to have complete 
ownership over an entire district of this city so that it becomes ours so that we can do with it what we want so that we can we can have complete control over planning and development of governance and it becomes this kind of google topia or you know some kind of tech driven city there's some like really bizarre developments around this happening as well whereas very recently there was a bill introduced to the Nevada state legislation that was focused on providing tech companies with charters so that they could actually have cities and so that they would also have ability like tax collecting ability and they would have ability to run courts. These kinds of things that we expect a government to do in the city of Nevada as a way to coax investment, this kind of like foreign investment into the state through technology companies trying to find innovative and bizarre ways of essentially handing over what's been implicitly a kind of handover of more functions of the state to private enterprise, making it explicit, just saying, yep, you you can be the city, you can be the state. That's fine. You can be the government. Things at least appear to happen at such an accelerated pace now. Smart urbanism in its modern conception really didn't kick off until about 2008. So over the last 13 years or so, We can see the development of three distinct but interrelated phases of the convergence between technological capital and urban capital. So in relation to this difference that you make between the older neoliberal project of smart cities in a kind of dystopian public-private partnership with the new type of platform urbanism, which really seeks to get control over the everyday governance of cityscapes. What is the role of the state in all of this? When we think about data, it's not just an economic asset that is being generated and used by private companies, but we also know that it is an instrument of control. So how to make sense of the role of the state in these processes? Yeah, I mean, I think that is really crucial is understanding and asking that question, what role does the state have? Because it's not as if the state has stood outside of these developments. It's very much trying to benefit from them as well. The the government, the state is also and has long been a major collector of data. It's necessary to do governance, to understand what's happening within its its territory, to govern its citizens and its inhabitants, right? So the, the idea of data collection is certainly not foreign to states, but increasingly we do see them partnering with and relying on and outsourcing these capabilities to private enterprise, to private tech companies, something like the ways in which the police, right? The arm of the state are increasingly relying upon software platforms and data provided by tech companies like Palantir, for example. We can see some quite worrying developments here where the powers of surveillance and control between companies and the state are combining in really worrying ways. The more normative question of what role ought the state have here, I think is really important and really interesting because there is a role for the state to have, a different form of the state to have in terms of regulating, not only regulating these platforms and these companies, right? We can start seeing this now with a kind of a a growing and rising tide of pressure against the monopolies of companies like 
Google and Facebook and Amazon in the US and in Europe in particular, where the kind of resurgence of antitrust is starting to come about. Do we need to break up these platforms or have they become too powerful? I mean, I think the answer is obviously yes. It's become such an obvious yes that even countries like the US are starting to actually have to reckon with it. Um, something that they are very attuned to not doing until it becomes so obvious, so big that it becomes an even more harder problem to solve. So I think that there's a role to play there. But I also think that we have to think and go beyond these ideas of antitrust, these kinds of more liberal reforms based on our, how do we make the market a more competitive space, right? And start asking questions of how do we take these things out of the market? How do we decommodify things like data? I think that is an important area to really focus on because it is such a lifeblood of this economy that we have to attack the foundations. I'm starting to actually work with a colleague, Salome Villun, who's a, a legal scholar that does a lot of work in, on the question of democratic governance of data. We're starting to work on an argument and putting forward Kind of more legal and policy-based recommendations around what would it look like to treat data as a public good, to create institutions based on something like a data commons, to expropriate the data that is now a form of private property, treated as capital by these companies and expropriated in a way that actually turns it into a public resource, something that is administered and stewarded by public institutions specifically for socially beneficial purposes, specifically in ways that include representation of public interest, but also the public themselves in the decisions about how this data ought to be used. Because there is certainly a lot of data that simply should not have ever been collected and should be deleted forever. <laughs> but it is also not the case that all data collection is inherently bad or evil or worrying, that there is actually a really, that there's important roles to play in terms of collecting data, but also governing it, administering it, and using it for the public, for socially beneficial purposes. We talked about energy, right? Something like energy, it's really important to have data about energy usage, energy production, distribution. We need to have that data so that we can create a more sustainable energy system which services the common need rather than the way that that data is being used now, which is largely in terms of increasing profits for these uh, energy companies, for the oil and gas industry, and also increasing and consolidating their control over energy users, us, even things like public health, right? I mean, that is immensely important right now. It's on the mind of everybody around the world. We need data about public health in order to effectively manage healthcare, effectively manage crises. But the ways in which that data is being collected and used now is a lot of times quite anathema to those kinds of purposes. The role of the state has to be as a steward of the common need, as a representative of the public interest. And I think a really crucial way for that to happen is to go about turning data into a public good, decommodifying it, taking it out of the market, stripping it of its current 
position as a form of capital. What you sketch out is a form of Polanyian re-embedding of digital data-based capitalism by decommodifying it and making it a public good. Can you talk a little bit about this and what institutional forms this would take, specifically in relation to the role of the state? I have two questions. The first is, can we actually entrust the state to do this in a situation where the state itself relies on this data for controlling and policing and monitoring us as citizens? And the other is, uh, is the state the right unit uh, of action, given how global these technologies and, and companies are? Yeah, I mean, those are all really tough questions <laughs> and ones that I wrestle with myself. I think to start, I will say that importantly, there is no one monolithic state. The, the state itself is composed of many entities, many agencies, organizations. I think when people worry And rightfully so. I have these worries too about that question of, is the state the right institution to be doing this? What they have in mind is the way in which the state currently does that. And that's largely through the police. It's largely through these more coercive arms of the state. But there are also other agencies within the state itself, like social services, that people do actually rely upon and actually do are happy that it exists, right? They're happy that the state is there to provide them with services, to support them, and they want the state to do more of that. That's the kind of basic implication of a socialist approach, is that we want a different form of the state, and we want versions of state institutions that already exist to be the priority, to take precedent, to have more power over institutions within the state that currently do that, which are largely very revanchist, very coercive uh, arms of the state. You know, in a tactical, strategic sense, there's There's a question of how to make that happen, right? How to disempower some arms of the state while also empowering other institutions within the state. And so when I'm thinking about data as a public good, something that's administered by state or state-like institutions, I'm certainly not thinking of like the NSA or the CIA or the FBI as the ones that would be doing that, right? I'm thinking of either institutions that don't yet exist and need to be created or institutions that do exist and need to be empowered. So something like the Library of Congress, right, as a kind of federal state institution that could potentially do this. Something like library science is all about the administration of information, the administration of data, and doing so in ways that are highly sensitive to the sensitivities of that data and are meant to serve the common need. People love their public library, their state libraries. I love mine in Melbourne. I, you know, I've loved mine in every city that I've ever lived in. It's great. Wouldn't it be fantastic if the library, this institution of the state that we really like and that we're happy with also did other things that we really liked and that we were happy with? And so those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about when, when I'm thinking about the state. That question of is the state even the right unit, unit of analysis is also really interesting. You know, I think that there's two ways of going about this. There's an argument here that because the state is so geographically, territorially circumscribed, do we need transnational state-like institutions like the UN or the EU for a regional example to do this? I think there's an argument there, right? Like for all of its flaws, something like the European GDPR, the General Data Protector Regulation, is an example of federal state-like entity like the European Union trying to 
trying to regulate, trying to do this in a way that goes across the entire continent. In a place like the EU, that might be the way to do it, right? In the US, there's only the federal state. So you, you have to look at the state itself. I think it's really tricky when you start thinking about the UN, because what kind of binding power does the UN have to force other states to follow along? I mean, not much if they don't want to, especially if they're on the Security Council. I think, unfortunately, it does have to start looking at changing specific states and changing rules within that and hoping that others follow along. I don't know if in our lifetimes ever be a kind of global institution that can manage, you know, these kinds of questions across the entire world. I think that we have to really focus on and and be extremely happy with any successes that we have within geographical circumscribed areas. I also wanted to raise that, you know, I think that there's another question as, as well, a more kind of anarchist approach, right? Like, should we even be thinking about the state? Isn't the whole purpose here to abolish the state, to to crush it, to get it out of the way? You know, I think we can argue about that for sure. Um, and we can argue about what is the best strategy for ultimately trying to everyone reach the same goal. You know, for better or worse, I am in many ways just a plain old Marxist um, when it comes to these kinds of questions. Um, and that does mean that I focus on developments, right? Transitional periods. And I think that capturing the state and subordinating it to our needs, to the common need, is, in my view, an extremely important and necessary transitional point to getting something like communism, you know, some, some, some stateless, classless utopia that I hope to live in one day. <laughs> if you want to learn more about Jaden's research and the political economy of digital capitalism, check out the links in the description of this episode. The dark irony of relying on some of the very platforms we discussed here for bringing this conversation to you is, well, not lost on me, but one might call it a strategic compromise. In the next episode of Polico, I will discuss the political economy of Rwanda's so-called growth miracle and the room for industrial policy in sub-Saharan Africa with British Bihuria from the University of Manchester. Until then, take care.